Please open up your copy of God's Word to Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. That's going to be the passage we're going to be in today. As you're turning there, I can tell you this morning that I am... I may not have as much pep in my step this morning because I'm very sore. Um, I ran a 5K yesterday with military-style obstacles. And, well, there is a very good reason the military doesn't recruit 44-year-old men. I survived, but barely. As I said, just getting out of bed this morning was quite a feat. Uh, The reason I put my body through that is, as many of you already know, that when Noah headed off to Marine Boot Camp, which he, Lord willing, will graduate from a week from this Thursday, uh, I decided to begin regularly to exercise and work out, and I did it for a couple of different reasons. Number one, to honor and support and identify with my son, who was going through much more rigorous physical training and workouts than I have been. And secondly, simply to get healthier. I knew that if I continued not to take care of my body, that I was putting my life at risk and the stability of my family in, in, at risk. And, and so part of the reason I am exercising, perhaps the main reason, is simply to get healthier. And, and the reason I put it in such stark terms there is, 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 is as far as my life uh, being on the line is because I know my family uh, lineage. Both my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family has a history of heart disease and high blood pressure and stroke. Matter of fact, my family is predisposed to those sort of problems. Now, the fact that they are is not necessarily directly my fault, but it is a reality. I've inherited certain genetic predispositions to those diseases. I've inherited other genetic predispositions, such as being short, having blonde hair, and having that famous Irish temper. And I'm old enough now to see that much of the things that my parents and my grandparents liked I like. Many of the quirks they had, I have. And there's just certain traits that pass on down from generation to generation. But you know something there is here in this room, and all of us here, we all share an identical trait that has been passed down to all of us from one common ancestor. It's actually more than merely a trait. It's our very nature. We all have inherited a sinful nature. We can't escape it any more than I can escape the Doyle gene for fair skin. We've all inherited the sinful nature of our forefather Adam, and we have inherited his guilt, the guilt of his transgression of God's law, his breaking of God's covenant. And no amount of genetic modification, DNA tampering, or careful breeding can eliminate sin from the human lineage. In today's text, Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16, we see that truth emerge. We see that the sinful nature is simply passed on to a new generation. For in today's text, we see the very first children being born to man. But before we get into today's text, let's recap a little bit. So far, we've been going through the book of Genesis uh, verse by verse in a sermon series entitled Foundations. And in the very beginning, chapter 1, we've seen the glorious nature of our creator God on display as he spoke the universe into being. We've seen the beautiful design and order of his good creation. We've seen the unique place and purpose of human beings within God's creation as his image bearers. Um, We've seen that as image bearers that mankind was created for community, for relationships, the most 
primal of which is the marriage relationship. But we've also seen in these past few chapters that man transgressed God's law. We saw corruption come into God's perfect world as man sinned. We've seen the shame and the guilt that came upon man. We've seen man try to hide his shame and guilt through his own power, but to no avail. And we've seen the personal, interpersonal, and cosmic consequences of Adam's sin. And we've seen the justice of God as he judged man's sin. But we've also seen the grace of God in many different ways in the passages, but most particularly in Genesis 3.15 as God gives a promise. In the midst of his judgment upon the snake, we see that God promised a deliverer, a victor over the serpent, an offspring, a son who would come from the woman. And in, the last, week, in last week's message, we've, we saw the first glimmer of, of Adam's faith and we saw the first glimmer of God's atoning work. And we've seen Adam believe, put his faith in God's promise, evidenced by naming his wife Eve, which means life, for he had faith. He believed that she would be the mother of all living. So it's in that context, it's important to understand that context of him naming her the mother of all living, of him having this hope in Genesis 3.15 that we come to Genesis 4, verse 1. So please stand, if you would, right now as we read Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. We stand at Harbin's in the honor of reading the text that we're going to be preaching on today because we believe this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And Abel, sorry, a worker of the ground. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flocks and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother, He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you have worked the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled 
in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to gather and to hear it, to receive it. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would enable us to receive it well. Give us ears to hear and give me a mouth to speak and give us all hearts that are fertile ground to receive your word. So I pray now that you would speak to us through it. Thank you for it. And thank you for this community of believers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right. Anyone in here, maybe kids in here who've been studying, you know, geology or studying uh, geography even, what is, what is river bifurcation? Do you know what river bifurcation is? Anybody? Just the word bifurcate. Does anyone know what that means? To, to what? It, it, it bias two, that's right. It means to split in two. So a river that bifurcates, river bifurcation, is when it occurs when a single stream separates into two separate streams called distributaries. Sometimes that can be because of, because of a large rock formation or whatever else. But it separates into two streams, continuing downstream, sometimes forming two completely distinct rivers. What we see in Genesis chapter 4 is the bifurcation of the stream of humanity of mankind. The stream of mankind. Into two different families, two different tribes, two different spirit, with two different spiritual fathers, exhibiting two different ways to live with two different destinies. So we're going to see that in today's text, and it flows throughout the rest of Scripture. So this is a very important text today. But before we see this bifurcation... We observe that Genesis 4 begins with a lot of hope. Remember, Adam has named his wife Eve, which means life. And he did so in faith, trusting in God's promise of Genesis 3.15. It's worth remembering that promise this morning. So let me read that for you. Genesis 3.15. This is while God was cursing the snake. He said, I will put enmity between you. He's speaking to the snake, to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring, plural, and her offspring, plural, he, singular, shall bruise your head, and you, singular, shall bruise his heel. The promise was of offspring, plural, a people coming from the lineage of uh, Adam and Eve, but one of the offspring, one of the sons, being a deliverer, a snake crusher. So it's with great hope that Adam and Eve come to verse 1 here. Verse 1 says, Now Adam knew, his, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This had to be an amazing experience for Adam and Eve. The promises of God seemed all the more real to them now. This is the first baby ever born. Think about how amazing it was. And for the, for you, those of you who are, are uh, parents in here, think about how amazing it was that, that experience, the, first, the, the time your first child came into the world. Okay, So much amazement, so much wonder, so much awe. Magnify that. By I don't know how much, because this is the first baby ever born. This was an amazing experience for them. So there's much praise and much awe that must be flowing to God as this firstborn child arrives. But not only are Adam and Eve overwhelmed by simply the birth of a new human, they are reminded of God's word in a couple of different ways. First of all, the pain of childbirth that Eve experienced was a reminder of their fallen state. Okay, that, because God's word had said that childbearing would now be painful. 
But then, as this new human life makes its appearance on the stage of, 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 of the creation, uh, they were reminded of God's promise of an offspring. And they must have been wondering, is this the one? Is this the one that God spoke of when he was cursing that devil? Is this the one? Is this the deliverer? And I think Eve's words indicate such a hope. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now this may simply be her acknowledging that, that God was blessing her with a child. But, but literally this reads, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Which would be an odd way of expressing God's blessings. Instead it seems to indicate that she thinks that this child is the promised son coming from the Lord. The one that God promised to send. But she would come to know very soon that her hopes for this child to be the deliverer were misplaced. Matter of fact, this child would actually end up proving to be part of the serpent's family. For as Adam and Eve will soon learn, all of mankind is born into sin. All of mankind has that trait of the sinful nature passed on to them. And because of that, every single person ever born is actually born into the offspring of the snake. And we'll talk more about that later. But for now, let us see that after Cain comes another brother. Verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Both the occupations of these two men uh, mentioned here, shepherding and farming, were occupations that reflected the cultural mandate given at creation to Adam to keep the earth, to cultivate the earth. So up to this point, the story seems to be going well. Two children doing what God had commanded. But it doesn't take long before we see this bifurcation, the splitting in two of humanity. It doesn't take long to see two different hearts on display in these two men and thus two spiritual lineages emerging. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And here's the split as we continue to read. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So that brings me to our first point this morning. From Genesis 4, we see the bifurcation of humanity, the splitting in two of humanity, between those who exhibit faith-driven worship and those who exercise performance-driven worship. It's very easy to desire more information when you come to a passage like this. We don't know all that's happened up to this point. Uh, we don't know how many years have passed. We can assume that the, both the boys are now grown men because they're, they're carrying out a profession. We can assume that Adam has taught them about worship. But one son's worship is right and acceptable. But the other son's worship is corrupt and is rejected. The quality of their worship is seen in the offerings that they bring. Now let me say that I do not think that the reason that one offering was accepted and the other offering was rejected resides in the type of offering or the type of sacrifice that was being brought. Abel does offer a blood sacrifice. And as we discussed last week, all the blood sacrifices point to the atonement yet to come. But all throughout the Old Testament there are other types of offerings as well such as grain offerings prescribed in, in Leviticus 2. And God gladly receives those offerings as well. So what is the difference then between these two offerings? Well, we have some hints in the text. 
The Hebrew construction of Abel's offering is elaborate. And it shows that, that Moses was stressing the lengths to which Abel went to bring an offering that was pleasing to God. Verse 4. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock. There's the first clue. The firstborn was considered the most valuable and the most important of the animals in the flock. And not only did he bring the firstborn, we read also that he brought their fat portions. In the ancient cultures, and you see this all throughout the Old Testament, the fat portions, it may be a, a weird way for us to refer to it now, but the fat portions were the prized portions of the animal. Those are the parts considered to be the best and the most valuable. So in other words, Moses is telling us that Abel brought the best of the best to God. So this way that is constructed in the Hebrew is basically saying Abel brought the best of the best to his God. In contrast, we read that Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. This is a very plain and generic description of Cain's offering. There's nothing to suggest that the produce he brought was the first fruits of his harvest. Nor is there any indication that this was the best of his harvest. So Moses has drawn for us here a stark contrast. But as we'll see, it's not the sacrifices themselves that brings pleasure to God, but the heart behind them, the heart that brings that type of sacrifice. The person who brings, and and this applies to us as much today as to them, the person who brings his leftovers, what he can spare to God, is a person whose actions reflect a heart that values God lightly and trusts in himself greatly. Let me say that again. A person who brings his leftovers or what he can spare to God is a person whose actions reflect a heart that values God lightly and trusts in himself greatly. Whereas the one who brings God his best sacrificially off the top, off the top of his paycheck, if you will, in our day and age, is the one who reflects a heart that values God greatly and trusts in himself lightly. We want to be people who value God greatly and trust in ourselves lightly. Our offerings to God, in other words, of our time, of our talents, and of our treasures reflect whether or not we have strong faith. Our offerings to God of our time, our talent, and our treasures reflect whether or not we have strong faith. Do our offerings cost us and make us trust God more? Or do we hardly miss what we bring to the Lord? Does it require no level of greater trust in God? Those are tough questions that we all must ask ourselves. You see, Cain had the wrong treasure. We know that. Lest you think I'm reading too much into Genesis 4, we know that Cain valued the wrong treasure because Jude, verse 11, says this, speaking about false teachers. It says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. These false teachers did not worship God rightly. They forsook forsook the Lord for the sake of gain. That was the motivation of Cain here. He only brought his leftovers to God because he valued his treasure much more than God. In other words, God wasn't his treasure. This, the one who has the wrong treasure, ultimately has a faith issue. He's trusting in the wrong thing. And so faith is the real issue here in this text. 
Abel comes to God in faith-driven worship, but Cain is simply going through the motions, exhibiting performance-driven worship. Thousands of years later, on this very day today, Sunday, the Lord's Day, across this nation and across this globe, in churches like ours, and even in this church here, people come with either one of the same two motives, as Cain and Abel did. Faith-driven worship or performance-driven worship. One is acceptable, the other is not. One is pleasing to God, the other is not. Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. If your offerings you bring of your time, your talent, and your treasure are not done in absolute faith and trusting in God, it is of no pleasure to our Father. And it is Abel's faith that makes him right with God. But it's Cain's lack of faith that puts him at enmity with God. So this isn't merely about God accepting gifts, but God accepting people. Look closer at the text. It says, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. God's not just accepting or rejecting the offering, but the person. God has regard. Literally, it means that God looks upon with favor Abel, but has no favorable glance or look toward Cain. It reminds me of 1 Samuel 16, 7. On the surface here, perhaps no one could tell the difference. But 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. But if you're having a hard time seeing faith in today's passage, well, let us let the Scripture interpret Scripture, just like we did a minute ago with Jude uh, verse 11. Let's let the New Testament shed light on the old. Hebrews 11.4. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended, he, Abel, was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. Oh, friends, beware of empty, performance-driven worship. Empty, faithless worship is satanic. It's from the line of Cain. And God warns against it throughout the entire Bible. We see God warn over and over and over again against empty worship. Let me just give you an example. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations... I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Friends, beware of coming to God by performing rituals and deeds that are devoid of faith. As we move along in the story, we see that 
the two men realize that one is accepted and the other has been rejected because immediately Cain gets angry. He gets angry that his offering was rejected. And so he begins to dialogue with God. And this will bring us to our next point. From Genesis 4, we see the bifurcation of the humanity between those who manifest brokenness before God and those who maintain bitterness against God. Between those who manifest brokenness and those who maintain bitterness. Upon being rejected by God, we read in verse 5, the second half of verse 5, so Cain was very angry. Literally, it means he burned. He was on fire. And his face fell, meaning he was sad. But more than that, he's pouting. Friends, the Lord's rebukes in a person's life will either cause him or her to be broken or to be bitter. That's basically the way people react to the Lord's rebukes, either brokenness or bitterness. Those who belong to God are broken, and those who belong to Satan are bitter. Cain shows no brokenness. Instead, he gets angry with God, burning against God. He's mad. He's like he's saying, I worshiped you, God. What gives? He's angry because he thinks he's entitled to acceptance because he fulfilled some religious duty. How often does that affect people in our churches today? I can't tell you how many times I've run into people who are angry at God and they justify their anger by saying things like this. I went to church. I gave money. I prayed. I was kind to others. And God did nothing for me. My life stinks my problems are still here. It's not fair. I deserve better. No, you don't. You deserve hell. God doesn't owe any of us anything. John Calvin, uh, commenting on this passage, said this. In the person of Cain is portrayed to us the likeness of a wicked man who yet desires to be esteemed a just man. Such persons truly, by external works, strenuously labor to deserve well at the hands of God, but retaining a heart enwrapped in deceit, they present him nothing but a mask, so that in their laborious and anxious religious worship, there is nothing sincere, nothing but mere pretense. When they afterwards see that they gain no advantage, they betray the venom of their minds, for they not only complain against God, but they break forth in manifest fury, so that if they were able... They would gladly tear him down from his heavenly throne. They think that God does them great wrong if he does not applaud them. But when he pronounces their offerings frivolous and of no value in his sight, they first begin to murmur and then to rage. They wish to bargain with God on their own terms. When this is denied, they burn with furious indignation, which, though conceived against God, they cast forth upon his children." Many of us in here at one time or another, maybe even today, have tried to bargain with God only to burn against him and hate other people when he doesn't meet our demands. Let's be honest. Many of us in here try to get God to, to do things on our terms and then when he doesn't do it, it makes us angry at him and that anger overflows to everyone else around us. Let me give you an example. That's just part of our nature. Let me just give you an example, okay? I think that maybe you guys can identify with. All right, let's be honest here. When you were in school, were you ever angry at the classmate who got the really good grades? Okay? Now, if you were the classmate that got the really good grades, just zip it right now, okay? But were you ever angry at that kid who just got the good grade? They did nothing. 
they didn't, they didn't work at it. They just showed up and, ah, there's the A+. Plus. Did it ever make you just uh, a little bit frustrated? And then, to top it off, the teacher gave them the most attention. They were the teacher's pet. Did you ever feel like it? Were you ever in that situation where you just kind of got stirred up? And when you think about that, they did nothing wrong. The teacher did nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong for the student to actually answer all the questions correctly. And it's nothing wrong for the teacher to recognize that this student did a good job. There's, that's actually good. But it makes you angry because you can't justify your C+. You want to be able to justify it and therefore, ugh, that teacher pet and that, we get mad. Because we always want to justify our performance before God. We want to justify what we've done. God is not a teacher prone to handing out any sort of unbalanced praise. God has perfect, fair, and genuine fatherly concern. Even for Cain here, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, meaning if you worship me and relate to me by faith, like, Cain, like Abel, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And again, this isn't about the offerings, about the person. Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What a gracious word from God. What a gracious word of warning to Cain. God is giving Cain an opportunity to see his empty worship, to recognize his faithless actions, to be broken, and to repent. In Eve's case, back in chapter 3, Satan had to talk her into sinning. In her son's case, Cain's case, here, God is trying to talk him out of sinning. Sin is crouching at the door. The image is of a wild beast sleeping at the doorway, waiting to devour Cain the moment the beast gets woken up. If you open the door and you wake up that beast, it's going to devour you. Verse 7, the last portion of verse 7. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? That reflects the oracle about the woman, um, about Eve in verse 16 of chapter 3. Eve was told, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. It's as if God is warning Cain by reminding him of the terrible outcome of his own mother's sin and showing him that if he continues down this path, he will come under complete domination of sin. Sin is an enslaving reality that all men are born into. John 8, 34 says that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Those are Jesus' words. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? God is warning Cain of these truths, but Cain does not heed God's gracious warning about sin's domination. He does not plead to God for a way out. God, show me a, a way out. He does not see his spiritual bankruptcy. He does not go to God in brokenness and trust God for forgiveness and for freedom. No, instead, he gives in to the alluring power of sin. And so we read in verse 8, Cain spoke to his brother, spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And so we see the overflow of sin. Who, who is Cain really angry with in this story? He's angry at God for not accepting him, not accepting his gift. But he can't kill God. If he could, he would. 
He can't kill God, so his anger overflows onto God's image bearer. Hatred of God always results in hatred of fellow man. Like my illustration of the classroom, our anger isn't only toward the, toward the teacher who gives out the grades. We're angry at the student who received the A's. Cain disregards God's warning because he hates God and so he murders his brother and demonstrates that he is not of the offspring of the woman. Instead, he is indeed of the offspring of the serpent. All men fall into one of two camps. There are two streams, and we see that Cain is part of the satanic stream. Why did Cain lash out at Abel in such fury? Well, we've already talked about it somewhat, but John 3 really makes it, 1 John 3 makes it very clear for us. 1 John 3, 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was, listen to this, of the evil one, meaning that was his descendancy. He was of the satanic tribe. He was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? text goes on to say, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. In other words, there's two streams. There's two streams. His deeds were evil, his brothers were righteous, and so he lashed out against the righteous brother. And then verse 13 of John chapter 3 says this, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Isn't this interesting? To shift from Cain and Abel all of a sudden to talking about the world. Cain, therefore, is of the world. The world is the kingdom of Satan. We know that we have passed, verse 14 of John chapter 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life. We were all born into that other stream, but we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Listen to that. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This sounds like Jesus' words from, John, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Anger, hatred of brother, is murder of the heart. Cain hated God and thus hated his brother and killed him because he, Cain, was of the seed of the serpent. Jesus says the very same thing about the Pharisees, who though they were of the people of God, in other words, they were Israelites by DNA, they proved not to be the people of God by their very actions. So Jesus says in John 8, verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And lies are the very next thing that come off the lips of Cain in this story. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Now, God, like before in Genesis 3, he graciously comes looking for Cain, and, and he isn't asking this because he doesn't know where Abel is. Or he doesn't know what's happened. What he's doing is he's giving an opportunity for Cain to confess his sin and repent. But Cain's response is worse than his parents' responses were, for they both eventually acknowledged their guilt and admitted what they had done. But Cain's response is a pure lie. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Is it my job to keep up with him? Are you not capable of that, God? Is that my job? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. No murder can be hidden. No sin can be hidden. The blood of every life 
unjustly taken, cries out to God. And God is their witness. God is their avenger. Though man may fool the authorities and never be caught for murder, and though the abortion may be hidden behind the clinic walls, and though the unwanted and the unknown of society may be discarded without anybody knowing anything about it, God knows, God sees, God hears, God avenges the blood of the slain. And so God now brings judgment. But as we saw before with Cain's parents, God brings justice mixed with mercy. For God does not wipe Cain out like he deserves. Instead, he actually preserves and protects Cain's life. But God does punish him. So look at verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground. Earlier, the ground was cursed in Adam's judgment. But now, as the blood of Abel sinks into the ground, the ground itself, I mean, the, 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 the man himself, uh, Cain, is cursed. It says here, and now you are cursed from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. He'll probably be a wanderer simply because he had to move from place to place to try to find food. Now, after this judgment of God, we see no change in Cain. So he had the opportunity to turn. He didn't. We see no change in Cain. And I, I want to make that our last point from this, for this morning. From Genesis 4, we see the bifurcation of humanity between those who genuinely demonstrate repentance over the essence of sin and those who merely display remorse over the effects of sin. Those who genuinely, and by essence, I mean what, what sin is. It's rebellion against God. Those who demonstrate genuine repentance over what sin is and then those who simply display remorse over what sin has done, the effects of it, what's happened because of it. And so we see here that Adam and Eve, we saw earlier that Adam and Eve has shown repentance as they turned toward God in faith. They understood that their sin was ultimately against God, that their sin was a failure to believe his word and instead believe Satan's words. And so they turned from Satan's word, they turned from rebellion against God, turned back to believing in God, but Cain, not so much. How does he respond to his sentence? Verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. He doesn't care about his sin. He cares about his punishment. The unrepentant heart cannot see the gravity of sin. Therefore, it thinks that the punishment is way too great. The unrepentant heart cannot see that it has committed cosmic treason... Therefore, it thinks that the consequences are totally unfair. But the repentant heart sees the ugliness of sin and knows that the punishment is deserved. The repentant heart finds no hope in itself but simply turns to God for mercy. Cain's complaint continues, verse 14. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And yet in the midst of Cain's complaint, we see again God's mercy. God's mercy mingled with his judgment. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now we have no idea what this mark is, and it's useless to speculate about it. But somehow, God made it clear to all those who would come, as the earth gradually is populated... God makes it clear to all those who come that Cain was not to be attacked. Vengeance was not to be brought against Cain for what he had done. 
But Cain is sent further into exile. Verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Listen to that. Away from the presence of the Lord. That's what sin does. And he was sent east of Eden. Remember, Adam and Eve, the, the entrance to Eden was, was facing east. And they were put out of the garden. So basically what we see here is that, that Cain is being exiled even further. It's sort of the trajectory we see in the scripture of being exiled, being sent further. Even in, in, when Israel is, is, is invaded by the conquering nations, what are they? They are exiled. They are taken eastward. So there's this pattern of, of being taken east which symbolizes being removed from God's presence, removed from God's favor. So we see these two streams emerging, two streams. We see these two streams throughout the Bible. The promised conflict of Genesis 3.15 is now, it's on now. Ding, 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 the, the, let the fight begin. The two streams have emerged. And at this point in Genesis 4, the promised resolution, the one offspring who would come to kill the serpent, has not yet arrived. But the promise still stands. And as the storyline of the Old Testament continues to develop with the choosing of Abraham and then the establishment of Israel itself, we will see the bifurcation continues. We see it between Israel and the other nations surrounding them. And we see it even within Israel itself, between believing Israel and unbelieving Israel. We see these two streams flowing throughout the history of mankind. And so we see the significance of this account for the people that Moses is leading as he's trying to lead them to the promised land. And when he first gives them these words, we see the significance of, of what this account means to them. They've just been rescued out of Egypt. The bifurcation explains why they had to be brought out of Egypt. But it will also explain the source of the internal struggles and conflicts that will continue within Israel itself. <coughs> so in the Old Testament, those who put their hope in the one to come, those who had faith in God's promise, are members of the stream known as the offspring of the woman. But those who did not were not. And today, those who put their hope in the one who came those who have faith in all of God's promises, that, that, that all of God's promises, I should say, find their yes and amen in Jesus, are also of the offspring of the woman. But those who do not, are not. So let me just conclude this morning with a word to the unbelievers in here. You must first see that we were all born with a heart problem. I, I mentioned earlier that, yes, I'm trying to exercise so that I can have a healthier heart. It won't be be prone to the same problems that have plagued my family in the past. But there's a bigger heart problem, a bigger health problem that every single one of us are born with. We are all born with dead hearts, hearts given over to sin, hearts given over to the enemy's rebellion. We are all born into the stream of humanity known as the offspring of the serpent. But Jesus came, and by his life and death and burial and resurrection, he raided the enemy camp and rescued a people for himself he brought us into a different stream, into the offspring of the woman. His saving work involved changing our dead, rebellious hearts into living, obedient ones. It involved taking our sin upon himself by absorbing God's wrath on the cross. It involved crediting his own perfect law-keeping righteousness to us so that we might be right with God. 
and it involved uniting us to himself so that his death is our death and his resurrection is our resurrection. And it involved adopting us into God's family as his children, as co-heirs, so that we might be his people, his offspring. Oh, friend, Abel's blood demanded justice, the same justice you and I deserve. But Jesus' blood brings mercy. So, friends, let me give you the invitation that Hebrews gives you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how gracious and merciful you are to look on sinners like us and to rescue us from the domain of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. That is a stunning thing because we cannot look at Cain and say, ah, I'm glad I'm not like him. All we can look at, do is look at Cain and say, Lord, thank you for rescuing me from being just like him. And so, Lord, this morning as we sing, as we respond with our offerings, may they be acceptable to you. May everything we sing be sung in faith. May everything we give be given in faith. And Lord, if there be any in here who are not of the stream that's called the offspring of a woman, they're still living in rebellion against you. And they've never turned to you. They never turned from their sin. They never confessed their sin, repented of that sin, and turned to you and pleaded to you for forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. I pray, Lord, that you would do that work in their heart even now as we sing. So Lord, do your work in all of us this morning. Help us to be people because we know even in our saved state, even as people in the stream of the offspring of the woman, we still struggle with sin. And so many times we reflect our old father. But we want to reflect you, Father. So convict us of sin. Give us lips that will confess and turn from our sin. Give us hearts that will worship you now in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.